From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. One of the hottest nutrition fads of 2018 has been juicing. That is, drinking rather than eating your daily dose of fruits and vegetables. But is that a healthy way to lose weight? It's delicious, that's for sure. As we strive to live and eat healthy, diet and nutrition are always a hot topic. But how do we know what is fact and what's fiction? On today's program, we'll learn more about juicing and other diet and nutrition trends from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, understanding polycystic kidney disease, what it is and how it's treated. And we'll learn about diseases and disorders of the hair. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. As people search for ways to eat healthier and lose weight... Juicing, sometimes called a juice cleanse or a detox, it's gained popularity. (laughs) And juicing is a term that refers to combining fruits and or vegetables in a juicer or a juicing machine, and you grind that stuff all up into something you can actually drink. (laughs) While juicing may help you get the five to nine recommended servings of fruits and vegetables each day, that alone is not a balanced diet, and I don't think that that even really counts. We'll talk to Kate about that. Here to discuss the benefits and drawbacks of juicing, and I should say a lot of other topics as well, is Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky. Welcome back to the program, Kate. Thanks for having me. You know, it's always good to have a dietitian on the program, but what does a dietitian normally have for breakfast? Uh, Dr. Shives and Tracy, I had pineapple and my special hot chocolate. Tell us about that hot chocolate. So my hot cocoa. And everyone who knows me knows that I drink my hot cocoa year round. Mm-hmm. It is milk with cocoa powder. Mm-hmm. That's it. And and so I don't add any sugar, but just for a little bit of sweetness, a little whipped cream, and a few mini chips, <laughs> mini chocolate chips on the top. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did we call the dietitian's delight? delight. Dietitian's yep. delight. <laughs> I just wondered. You know, you know, at least you came clean. I'm just yeah. saying that hot chocolate and pineapple is a strange combination, but I'm not against trying it, so I will. Let's then circle back to that pineapple. What if you would have thrown that pineapple into a blender with a banana and a couple of ice cubes? Is it as good to drink your pineapple as it is to eat your pineapple? If you're blending it and eating the whole foods, mm-hmm. I think there's more benefit there than to say if I were to extract some of the fiber out, because you do want to have that fiber. Beyond that, there are some arguments and around eating whole foods and chewing them and maybe the satisfaction you get out of chewing food. And then there's another argument to say, well, when you eat the whole food and you're chewing it, then your body does have to do a little work to digest it. So you have kind of a a pro and a con there. If it's broken down, some Mm -hmm. argue, well, you'll absorb more nutrients where other people say, well, maybe you should eat more whole foods because just like every other muscle in your body, your gut needs a little workout too. Well, and it's kind of a catch-all term because juicing can mean the juice is extracted out and there's all of this fibery stuff left behind or... Dr. Shives, you could put it all in a blender mm-hmm. and just blend it up like crazy, and there's nothing left behind. It all goes into a glass. Look, so you mean when you juice, you lose the fiber? The fiber is kind of a sediment at the bottom, and it's, you don't drink that? No, it's not even in the glass. If you do juicing, you put it through the machine, and then all that fiber and pulp and stuff is left behind, whereas I put everything in a blender mm-hmm. and just whip it up. My kid even <laughs> puts carrots in there. He likes them because they're sweet. Well, and I think they're, and I think that's a really good point because mm-hmm. there are some vegetables that 
adds some sweetness. Mm-hmm. So if, in, in depending what your pre- taste preferences are, if, you know, some people will want to eat more greens or keep the calorie content of their smoothies down. Mm-hmm. So adding vegetables is a nice way, but some people don't necessarily like the bitter of the greens or some of the vegetables. So pairing that with a sweeter fruit like pineapple mm-hmm. is a really a nice trick. It's a difference, Shives. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Is there an ideal combination of fruits and vegetables? I mean, it, can you make such a thing? Can you make an, an ideal concoction? Or does it really matter? Well, and I think the ideal would be in, in maybe the eye of the beholder um, and maybe what their their needs are. Now, if somebody, say, were trying to get more iron in their diet I'm, and absorb more iron, I might sure. say with your leafy greens, combine it with something that's going to have more vitamin C like citrus or the pineapple. Um, that's a nice combination because you have the vitamin C helping some of the iron be absorbed from that. So does juicing help you lose weight? I mean, do you, do you tend to get full when you do this and and eat less? Well, and I think it, it probably depends how it's made. And, and so like anything, what goes into it and the portion matter. And so... If it were, say, just just the juice, the pulp extracted, in, you could drink a, a lot of juice mm-hmm. and a lot of calories if there were many, many fruits in there. Now, granted, it's nutritious, but um, there it, it is a significant amount of calories. Um, and even if it were a whole food smoothie, there is a chance that it could be extra calories for you. And so you just want to keep that in mind. And that's where some people are finding the combination of the fruit and the vegetables lower the, the calorie content of the overall beverage. Um, and then I think just the idea of just keeping the keeping the portion in check, you might want to just share it with somebody. Mm-hmm. So some of the recipes actually call for a little bit of added sugar, but that's not a good idea, is it? I don't, and it Wherever we can cut out added sugar in our diet is probably a good idea because we're eating far too much of it. So any chance you can cut back or cut it out is a good idea. And with the natural sweetness of fruit and some vegetables, it's probably not necessary to add it. The secret is an avocado, which makes them really, really smooth. Sounds mm-hmm. weird. Can't yeah. taste avocado when you do it. Or what is easier is really ripe bananas because that makes it sweeter and it makes it really smooth. Mm-hmm. So I've got so many frozen bananas in my freezer right now. Too many. I should have a smoothie party and you can come over. Are you really convinced, though, that this is better than a chocolate for a snack? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I sometimes put some chocolate powder in my smoothie, but that's just a different deal. Yeah, that's starting to make more sense to me (laughs) Okay, very good. That I could come over for. We're with Kate Zeratsky, dietitian Mayo Clinic. All right, well, we've talked about juicing. You're a juicer. Kate likes juicing. No, I'm not a juicer. You're, oh, you're I'm a, a smoothie sm- maker. I've oh. never made a juice in my life. Okay, so that's the I. answer to the question, <laughs> the difference between blending and extraction. That's right, right you, exactly. You take the whole thing so you get the that's fiber. Right. You get everything. Kate, are beans the new gluten? Lectins, are they the new gluten? Is that for real? Well, If you go on the internet, you might think so. (laughs) (laughs) And truth be told, both gluten and um, lectins are a protein found naturally in in plants. As far as lectins go, do I think there's something people need to avoid? I don't. Um, Unless someone truly thinks they have a sensitivity to certain foods, like any, I, you know, we want to respect that and we would want to be kind of systematic about our approach to removing foods from one's diet. Do you know what a sensitivity to lectins is like? 
I truly haven't had many people come to me and say that they have a lectin sensitivity, and I think it it would present probably like most other GI symptoms where there might be some um, discomfort, bloating, and maybe some bowel issues, really, mm-hmm. you know, along with it. Um, that said, I think um, it's uh, it's maybe not as much of a concern as it's made out to be because m- most foods that are higher in lectins, like beans, um, are generally cooked. And when they're cooked, that lectin is broken down. Mm-hmm. And so it's really not an, an issue. Um, and truly the, the benefits to eating beans is, is, is known and, and quite good for us. So I would, I would recommend people to eat beans. Well, there are a lot of people, though, who think that lectins are a problem. And there is a, a best-selling book on, uh, I saw it on Amazon. I looked it up when you started talking about, when I knew we were going to talk about lectins, because I'd never heard of them. <laughs> and it's called The Plant Paradox, The Hidden Dangers in Healthy Foods That Cause Disease <laughs> and Weight Gain. Huh. And it's by a, a cardiovascular surgeon. Okay. Um, and he says, you got to avoid these lectins. They're, they're bad for you. <laughs> And, it, and he's it, doing this to sell a book? In the review okay, of the book, right. it says the simple and daunting fact is lectins are everywhere. Thankfully, Dr. Gundry offers simple hacks we easily can employ to avoid them, including peel your veggies. Oh. You peel your veggies? Hmm. You ever heard of that? I, I would recommend not doing it if you don't have to. All right. Shop for fruit in season. I guess that makes sense because he says that uh, fruit, when it's not... Uh, completely ripe can, contains uh, uh, more lectins, and you want to avoid those. And swap <laughs> your brown rice for your white rice. I guess that's probably okay. Huh? Well, and if I would say if someone truly doesn't think they have an issue or a sensitivity to mm-hmm. lectins again, which I don't know that we can quantify if anyone would. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, having brown rice, having a whole grain would actually be preferred unless you have a reason um, and hopefully a medical reason not to to have that. So we, in, unless indicated otherwise, I would say people should have their whole grains. Um, so I would prefer that people would eat their brown rice over their white rice most of the time. You didn't buy this book, did you? No, I didn't, but there's all sorts of cookbooks to, uh, that will avoid of lectins course. in your diet. Well, it sounds actually like it's impossible, but they're out there. <laughs> and this Kelly Clarkson says, I read this book. It worked. Is, is she a singer, right? She, she said, my autoimmune disease is gone, and I am 37 pounds lighter because of she's been on this low-lectin diet. It's w- another fad a type of fad diet that if you limit some foods that you eat, you're going to lose weight. Right. And I, I think if, if you are to look, if, if you were to look this up and look mm-hmm. at some, it, like many fad diets, it is restrictive in nature. Mm-hmm. And so there are many foods that are eliminated. And so when you start eliminating many foods, the likelihood of someone losing weight is, you know, is probable and, mm-hmm. and likely to happen. And oftentimes when people lose weight and, uh, their their body responds differently. They do feel better. Uh, so that said, a lot of the foods that are suggested that be eliminated in this lectin-free diet are very healthy and nutritious foods and actually are foods that are thought to be anti-inflammatory and, and that it's kind of a counter argument mm-hmm. that, that they some will say they're inflammatory, but there's other substances in that food that are actually known to be anti-inflammatory. Basically, it's a fad. 
I, I would say it's a fad. And yes. you don't think there's any uh, good evidence to suggest that you ought to be on a low-lectin low diet? No, I don't think anyone should be on a, a low-lectin diet, absolutely, because I, I, don't, I don't think it's possible to eliminate lectins because they're in all plants, and we want people to eat plants. Now, within the plant family, mm-hmm. there are certain types of plants that people may have sensitivities to, mm-hmm. and I think if that's the case, again, we probably want to take a systematic approach to looking at one's diet and, and trying to eliminate foods um, in a way that doesn't eliminate all. And so, and there would be a reintroduction of foods because we don't want people to be on overly restricted diets um, because that's not um, an easy way to live life right. in, in terms of a long-term healthy diet. And so we want people to eat as, as many healthy foods as they can and to avoid the ones that truly give them problems. And it too, for some people, it, you know, just in terms of food sensitivities, it might just be how it, it might be how it's cooked. It might be the dose or the mm-hmm. amount that you eat at any one time. So oftentimes there's there's a ways around to include foods, but maybe just within a reasonable way of doing it. All right. So now we have to talk about probiotics in our last few minutes. Because as long as we're dispelling myths, yeah, Well, let's you have a friend who is afraid that she's going to die because of all the probiotics from what she heard on the news this morning. And so, again, when you talk about fads, it's circling back around that probiotics are bad. Or is that what the message message is? Well, and I think that the message is that it's an emerging science. Mm-hmm. And I think as as more and more research is done in this area, we're, we're seeing maybe a study that is showing benefits, and then we may see a, a study that shows the opposite and, and, and does not show those benefits. And so I think there's much to be learned um, about uh, the gut microbiome, that's the, the bacteria that naturally live within us mm-hmm. and and its role um, in our health and disease states. Mm-hmm. So I think more to come. Um, that said, when we talk about probiotics as being a dietitian, you know, I, I will bring the conversation back to food. Yeah. And, and You're there eating are, yogurt. And there's <laughs> foods that maybe naturally have some probiotics, and then there's foods that are considered prebiotics that may uh, help the set up the environment within your gut um, to be a healthier place to maybe promote uh, gut flora that may be health healthier beneficial. So the story that your friend heard this morning and um, that we're referring to, uh, there's taking the capsules, the pills that are labeled as probiotics. That's one thing. And then there's eating a serving of kombucha or sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. And isn't that line getting blurred? Right. And I think when we step into that arena of mm-hmm. taking a, pro- a probiotic or even having a drink, recognizing that this is an unregulated industry. And so you can say that you have this strain of, of bacteria or this much of this bacteria, but quite honestly, we don't know that that's absolutely true. And we can't say with certainty that that's the best thing or that's going to ben- benefit you. And I, again, we just, I don't think we have that science yet. And so I think it comes back to buyer beware. Um, and there are some people that report that they feel very well when they take a probiotic capsule or that they may have a drink that contains a probiotic. Now, whether that's a true effect or if that's a placebo effect, we don't know. Um, I think if it if they're an otherwise healthy person, they can they could they can probably practice that safely. 
but that's not to say that that's the case for everyone. All right, well, let me tell our listeners what we're referring to, and it's two reports that came out recently in the journal Cell, which is a peer-reviewed journal, by the way, and it says, quote, cast further doubt on the benefits of the highly commercialized probiotic products. Because they are marketed as dietary supplements, not drugs, probiotics do not need to be approved by the FDA for claims that they prevent or treat any health conditions. And basically, these two studies said they did nothing. Most of the patients who took them, they all went they went in one end and came out the other. <laughs> and the other one, the concern that your friend referred to was the fact that if you have taken an antibiotic, it may actually take your gut longer to recover if you take pro- probiotics uh, versus letting Mother Nature have her way and mm. do it that way. And so, I think that's I, what yeah. brings us back to food. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And and eating nutritious foods like fruits and vegetables and whole grains allow your body to have the the proper environment. It in, it can play with the pH or how the foods, you know, the fibers and and how things are digested there to set up an environment that's going to promote maybe a healthier flora. All right, juicing is good. We've decided that and it, we blend smoothies. smoothies. <laughs> Not juicing. All right, smoothies are good. Um, we've dispelled the myths about probiotics. There's certainly some question about whether or not uh, the claims are true. And lectins, not probably not to worry about having too many <laughs> lectins in your diet. No. Kate Zaraski, Dietitian, Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll talk about polycystic kidney disease. But first, here's Vivian Williams with this week's news. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Seasonal flu is a virus that attacks your respiratory system. Most people get better on their own, but for some, the flu can be serious. Mayo Clinic Family Medicine Specialist Dr. Tina Arden says that younger children and older adults definitely can get more sick from the flu. Patients who are already sick with other chronic conditions or are undergoing chemotherapy are more likely to have complications. Now, complications include bronchitis, pneumonia, and even heart problems. Dr. Arden says the vaccine for influenza is one of the best defenses we have and that some people don't get the flu vaccine because they think it could cause the flu. The flu vaccine is what's called a dead vaccine. You can't get the flu from a flu shot. Flu mist, while safe for most people, contains a weakened form of the virus, so people with certain conditions should get a shot instead. Everyone who can get it should get it, Dr. Arden says. It takes two weeks for the vaccine to work, so get your flu shot now. And in other news, let's talk about the hiccups. Faking hiccups is pretty easy, but getting rid of the real ones can be difficult. Dr. Mark Larson, a Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, says hiccups are an involuntary contraction of the diaphragm, followed by closure of the vocal cords that leads to the characteristic sound that you hear. Dr. Larson says most hiccup triggers are associated with temporary bloating of the stomach from something like overeating or rapidly eating. Gulping down big drinks, especially carbonated ones, can also cause hiccups. Even being suddenly excited or scared can cause that repetitive, involuntary contraction of the diaphragm. Larson says most people who experience hiccups will do so for only a very short period of time, usually less than a minute or two. Rarely, hiccups can last for days or even months, and that may be a clue that there is an underlying medical condition. As for halting the hiccups, Dr. Larson suggests simple remedies such as holding your breath, gargling, or simply sipping cold water. You should do something that interrupts that activity of the diaphragm. 
for the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Polycystic kidney disease, or PKD, is an inherited disorder where clusters of cysts develop within the kidneys. The cysts cause the kidneys to enlarge and lose function over time. Now, the cysts are benign, that is, they're non-cancerous. They're sacs that are filled with fluid. PKD can also cause cysts to develop in other parts of your body, mainly the liver. The disease can cause serious complications as well, including high blood pressure and kidney failure. The FDA recently approved the drug Tolvoptin. 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 You did good. (laughs) It's for patients with polycystic kidney disease. Mayo Clinic was instrumental in the research for this drug and will be one of the only few places to initially offer the treatment as part of its clinical practice. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic nephrologist Dr. Fouad Shabib. Welcome to the program, Dr. Shabib. Thank you for having me. Dr. Shabib, great to have you here, and it sounds like a real advance uh, for people who have polycystic kidney disease. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about the condition itself. So polycystic kidney disease, um, there's two types. There's one which is called autosomal recessive, and the other one is autosomal dominant. And that refers to the inheritance pattern. It refers to the inheritance. So the first one, the recessive, uh, it usually affects the the children, and then it it leads to kidney failure and some uh, liver issues as well. But the most common type, which we will talk more about, is the autosomal dominant, which affects mostly the adults. Uh, It's the most common inherited kidney disease. And as you mentioned, so these patients actually are born with some fluid-filled sacs, uh, so that are called cysts, but they don't cause any major issues uh, early on, uh, mostly high blood pressure, so hypertension. Sometimes they can cause some bleeding. And then later on, uh, these cysts grow and kind of uh, damage the kidney and lead to kidney failure. So, so one kind, uh, the, the recessive, the one that's probably less common, yes. uh, can affect you as a child. Exactly. And the more common type uh, will affect you as an adult, but they're both called polycystic kidney disease. Exactly. How common? So the autosomal dominant is, uh, as I mentioned, the most common. So it's one in 500 to one in 1,000 in the population. So there's about 600,000 patients with PKD or ADPKD, the autosomal dominant type, in the United States and about 12 to 13 million worldwide. And what happens if patients aren't treated? I mean, if it starts off wrecking your kidneys, and then what happens? Yeah, so... For decades, the patients who uh, have the family history, so they've seen their great-grandparents, their parents going through uh, this, this disease, they've never imagined that there's a kind of something to slow down the disease progression or the cyst from growing. So for many decades, the only thing would be treating high blood pressure, making sure you're healthy, and then once you reach the end-stage renal disease where you need either dialysis or transplantation, uh, that's usually the, the treatment. So there was no treatment, basically. And for the past uh, decade and a half, about 15 years, uh, so here at Mayo Clinic, uh, Dr. Torres in his lab, Vicente Torres, kind of found what's the basis of uh, these cysts from, uh, that leads to the cysts to be growing and filling with, uh, with fluids, uh, and found that if we target uh, the V2 receptor, so that's the receptor that the thirst hormone acts upon on the kidney, if you block that receptor, then you lead to lower what we call cyclic MP. So it's a molecule that drives the, for, that drives the cyst for, uh, in growing and filling with the cyst. So he found if we block that, then we can slow down the disease progression. 
And then we, we took that over to clinical trials and then found that this is the medication that would slow down the disease progression. So it's not a cure, but it slows down uh, the disease. Uh, from. So it, it kind of delays the need for kidney transplant or dialysis at earlier age, and hopefully they gain more years of good kidney function with the treatment. Even more than what previously would have been the line of treatment, which would be try to control your high blood pressure, still do that, but this medication now can push off any potential problems. Years, decades, what? So, yes, so treating high blood pressure is very, very important for these patients. And there has been some clinical trials. It did not show that it's going to delay too much the progression. So we needed some kind of treatment that would really slow down. So tolvaptan is the first uh, treatment for this disease. Uh, so usually the best is to start the patients on, these, uh, on this medication early on. So when their kidney function is still normal, but their kidneys are still making these cysts. So if we start it early on, they have to be on it for several years, for decades, probably 20, 20, 30 years, and they will gain hopefully several years back. Mm -hmm. And usually we say if someone is progressing fast, usually every four years of treatment uh, will delay the the need for dialysis by one year. Uh, So if you're on it for 20 years, it's probably an extra four or five years. Uh, There's not big... Uh, long long studies because it's a chronic sure. disease that needs many years to study. But so far, this is kind of the expectation. That's how it's going gonna, it's gonna to delay the disease. Wow, fantastic. So how do most patients find out that they have this disease? And have you ever seen a case where there wasn't a family history? Uh, so mostly uh, the majority of the patients would have someone in the family that has this disease, and they've been so familiar with that. Usually we diagnose by screening with an ultrasound. Uh, so you actually look at the kidneys and see the cysts. Exactly. So we look at the kidneys, we see the cysts, and we have kind of criteria on how many cysts, and depending on the age, because the, the older you are, the more cysts you'll have. Uh, so to diagnose, first we do the screening by ultrasound, and then we can do a CT scan or MRI to look more at, at kind of the, the kidney cysts and how big is the kidney. And then we can um, give a prognosis or how the patient will do depending on how big the cysts are. And if the patient wasn't aware that they had a family history of polycystic disease, what might be their first symptoms? What might lead them to come in and see you? Yeah, there's about 5 to 10% of the patients that don't have a family history. So that could be either a new mm. mutation, so a new defect in the gene that just happened in these patients. And usually the first sign is either high blood pressure or they get a, uh, some kind of bleeding from the cyst, so they see blood in the urine uh-huh. and they get pain in, the, in their back or uh, sometimes an infection in these cysts, and they get a fever and then a pain, and then uh, they get a imaging in the ER probably, and then they get a CAT scan or some kind of imaging, and they'll see these cysts, and they will diagnose them with So high blood pressure or blood in the urine? High blood pressure and blood in the urine. For uh, people who have polycystic kidney disease or there's a whole family history they've known for generations, it's probably in my deck of cards here, um, what is the takeaway? What do those patients need to know? So it's really an exciting news for all these patients. For example, yesterday I offered the treatment for one of the patients who, re- who kind of told me the story that even in the 1800s, they know that they had some kind of nephritis or some kind of kidney disease. And actually when she knew that there's an FDA-approved drug, she started crying actually for several minutes. It was very exciting news. So for these patients, uh, I would say they, first they need to make sure that they're getting good health care. So uh, in terms of blood pressure, and then see if they are eligible for this medication. Uh, so not all the patients would need to be treated, in fact. So some are slow progressors, so 
their cysts are small enough and small number that they don't need to be on any treatment except just being healthy and high, uh, treat the blood pressure. But some patients will progress very fast and they will need uh, dialysis in their 40s, 50s, and these patients will benefit most from the treatment. So it's important for these patients to be checked to know where they kind of are, are they slow or fast progressing, and then uh, probably screen their kids as well. Now that there's a treatment, we're recommending that these patients, if they are uh, the, the kids, if they are adults, uh, to kind of be checked for, for this disease because there's something to do about it now. Is the drug widely available? Uh, so it's kind of where it's very new, so it just got approved in May and in the market uh, as of June. And at Mayo Clinic, we just started this month the, the clinic because there's many logistics around this medication. It's uh, regulated by the FDA, and we need a lot of blood testing every month for the first year and a half. So now we have the support staff, the nurses that are uh, involved with us, and the physicians. So it is available. Um, it's kind of expensive drug, so probably it's still new and how the insurance will cover and so forth. But we're working with all the patients who are asking about it, and we're kind of uh, uh, doing some awareness to kind of let these patients come to their uh, kidney doctors, be checked, and also check their kids. And what's next in the research? Uh, a lot of things are exciting, actually, at Mayo. So we have a uh, great Mayo PKD Center, and we do a lot of translational research in a way that we do uh, research in the lab and try to translate it to the patients to, to get new treatments. So we have a new target, actually, we're very excited about, and a couple of drugs, uh, medications that could be effective. So hopefully that would be the next uh, good treatment for PKD uh, to help not only slow down but hopefully cure the disease and not have any patients needing dialysis or transplantation. Wow, that would be fabulous, wouldn't it? All right, That's the new it. drug is called Tolvaptan, and our guest, Mayo Clinic nephrologist, kidney specialist, Dr. Fouad Shabib. Dr. Shabib, thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll learn about diseases of the hair from a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, how many times have you heard a woman say, oh, my hair, I can't do anything with it? <laughs> or how many times have you seen a guy looking in the mirror going, what's happening to my hairline? Exactly, it's gone. But did you <laughs> actually realize that there are some diseases that you can get of the hair? I did not, but thank goodness we have Dr. Don Davis, our very favorite dermatologist from Mayo Clinic, with us to discuss hair issues. Thanks for having real, me. Is there a real show topic on just hair? There is. In fact, I think we could talk about hair for multiple shows and still not be finished. Well, I suppose if you throw the scalp in there with it, too. Right. And so the issue with the hair is that it comes from the scalp. And so there are two different things that can go wrong to give you a hair disorder. One, you can have an issue with the actual hair shaft, which is what we call hair, the dead protein that comes in a long chain that comes out of our scalp. Or you can have issues with the scalp itself that then causes the hair to not grow. And so I think the lay public is very aware that as you age, you can have thinning of the hair, what people would call male pattern baldness. Mm -hmm. And I think that people are becoming more aware that women can have male pattern baldness. We just call it androgenetic alopecia, and it can either have a male pattern or it can have a female pattern because men and women lose their hair differently from um, male pattern baldness, if you will. The other thing is, is that I think people know that after a stressful event, because hair is mostly cosmetic, 
and is there to uh, protect our scalps a little scalps a little bit and also retain a little bit of heat. But from a body standpoint, other than that, it's purely cosmetic. That if you have a stressful event like delivering a baby or having a surgery or getting a divorce, that you can shed your hair out of stress and it will grow back. We call that telogen effluvium. Can you say that again? Telogen effluvium. So telogen is the shedding hair phase. We all grow and shed our hair in cycles. Otherwise, we'd be like a snake or a reptile, and we'd grow and shed a skin all at once. Um, and effluvium means robustly. So essentially, if all your hair cycles from a traditional growth, rest, and shed phase that kind of happens at regular or irregular intervals so we don't grow and shed all at once, and it cycles into more shedding due to a stressful event, everything kind of gets upset. The apple cart gets turned over. People shed way more of their hair than they usually should, and it takes about 9 to 12 months for the hair to regain its normal um, grow and shed cycle. We we had uh, said well, we could do a show about hair, and you said there's actually diseases of the hair, yes. which I'd never heard of that before. So people think about growing and shedding hair and stress, and they think about female and male pattern baldness, but... I'm glad that we're talking about this because people can actually have disorders of the hair shaft itself. The hair shaft is a growth of dead protein chains that come out of your scalp and make the actual hair. And those can be abnormally formed, either genetically inherited or spontaneous, such that people say, my hair glistens strangely, or my hair feels like wire or straw, or I can only grow my hair out a half an inch before it breaks. Or I've never needed a haircut. Um, my hair is normal, quote unquote, and density and texture, but I've never had my haircut and I'm 30 years old. Why is that? And hmm. so if that happens to you where you feel your, your hair has an abnormal luster or lack of luster, it feels different than most people's hair, or you simply can't keep it to grow um, appropriately, come to the dermatologist because we can do a hair shaft analysis and look under the microscope at varying strengths of magnification to figure out what hair disorder you have. And some of them can be inherited and passed along to your family. Is it a hair disorder or uh, is it the hair follicle that actually produces the hair that's the problem? That's a great question. So it's a genetic abnormality or structure abnormality from the bulb. Hair is like tu a tulip. So I always tell my patients, when you grow hair, it's like growing a tulip. You have a bulb that sits in the ground, which is your scalp, and it has to be oriented in the right direction, and it has to have growth factors around it to then grow a shaft that if it were a flower would be a tulip, but instead is the hair shaft. So it gets composed in the bulb, which is where things go abnormal. You can also have abnormalities of the protein structure that supports the hair that keeps it anchored in your scalp. And if you have problems with that, you'll grow normal hair, but you won't keep it simply because it gets pulled out with regular things such as wearing a hat or brushing your hair. And that protein structure or the change that you're saying if people have a disease of the hair is that something that they develop over time? Or if it's a family one, of course, you're, it's inherited. Yeah, so you're, you're born with a tendency for the most part if it's inherited. Some of them can accelerate with time and get worse. However, for ones that have anchor problems where it's the supportive tissue that just doesn't keep the hair that's healthy into the scalp, those actually improve with age, probably because we get crustier and our skin gets stiffer. And so you just simply have more peripheral support so it doesn't get yanked hmm. out. And we're able to teach you some basic common sense things to allow you to keep your hair, you know, no tight braids, no dreadlocks, be careful with hats, things like that. Then there's the other set of hair conditions that are much more common, which is where you get an inflammatory disease that comes to your scalp and eats away the little tulip bulbs that are sitting in your skin 
And if an inflammatory disease eats away those bulbs and its surrounding structures, you will no longer be able to grow any hair in the future if, if it results in a scar. So if something is inflamed, we try to turn that process off immediately so that you've retained your hair follicular unit. So eventually your body will hopefully remember how to grow a bulb which then will become hair. Is that the alopecia when people lose their all of their hair? Yes. So the term alopecia means hair loss. And there are multiple reasons to lose hair. And so if you have a section of your scalp that is literally bald, as if somebody you know shaved it down mm-hmm. to the scalp, or it's nicely cut out like a circle, and it, it's in a weird pattern, or the skin turns really shiny, and looks very thin or it bleeds very easily. Or you notice that when you brush one part of your hair, many, many more hairs come out of that side than when you brush on other areas. Come to the dermatologist because these are all very time-sensitive diseases. And time is of the essence when it comes to the hair clock, mm-hmm. when it starts to tick. Because once you destroy the hair follicular unit and it scars shut, we cannot grow that hair back. Wow. So get to the dermatologist early. Now, what about, let's talk, talk about, get an update on the new treatments that you have for male baldness, female baldness. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I like to tell people is they're not alone. It's something that people feel very embarrassed about oftentimes. And men and women will go through all sorts of great lengths to try to hide their thinning hair. Time is also of the essence because the more we can block those hormone receptors on the scalp, the more your hair will be able to grow with regards to um, male or female pattern baldness. The best things to do are to use over-the-counter uh, Rogaine, which is available in 2% strength or 5%. There's no reason to use 2% when you can use 5%. Traditionally, it's labeled as being marketed for men, but it's just as good for women. You can use it in a shampoo, a foam, or a solution. I personally recommend the solution. It's sometimes a little harder to find in the stores, but you can order it online if the store doesn't have it. That's simply because when you use a shampoo, you wash it in and it washes out. And when you use a foam, it oftentimes gets gets absorbed in the hair you have. And so then it, it doesn't get to the scalp, which is where the action is, versus it's much easier to use a solution and simply make sure that the liquid gets on your scalp as if you're giving yourself um, a, a medical treatment. I just, for the sake of time, I have one more question to ask. How is it that someone with straight hair can all of a sudden get curly hair? Is it middle age or is it having a baby that makes that happen? <laughs> yeah, so straight hair. I'm asking for a friend. Or yes. chemotherapy. Or ke- yeah. no, chemotherapy. It, that changed it too. It actually yeah. changed the color a little bit. Yeah, so the color of the hair is based on the pigment that's inside of the bulb. So if you were to cut the bulb open, it would be colored to a certain extent on the inside, and that determines the color of your hair. We go gray when that pigment goes away because the light reflects a white or gray pigment. Um, the shape of the hair is based on um, how round or oblong it is when it's impregnated through the bulb into your scalp. So um, stick straight hair is a perfect circle versus curly hair tends to be more oblong and there's more sulfur to sulfur bonding in curly hair. So um, if you have a medication or an event in your life that causes your growth factors and structure of your hair to change, you can go from thinner or thicker hair or straight or curly hair. So you get gray hair because the follicle that produces the hair runs out of pigment. Correct. Uh, no way to get it back, I guess. <laughs> no, and if, if there was, we could all retire. <laughs> and I would take you with me. Yeah, you? Oh, that'd, be, that'd be great. You're so nice. All right, everything you wanted to know about hair and more with Dr. Don Davis, dermatologist at the Mayo Clinic.
Thanks for joining us, Dr. Davis. My pleasure. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.